We've got some uh, things that uh, we certainly need to pray about. And uh, thinking about all of the victims of the tornadoes. We understand that, don't we? And uh, you think about all of they are going through the grief. You think about the injuries. You think about uh, devastation. But also think about uh, somebody's got to restring the electric wires, right? I think about uh, somebody's got to guard against looters and those kind of things. I think about the law enforcement. I think about medical personnel and how they must be overwhelmed. And so we know those kind of things. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know with the things we've experienced here. So uh, we certainly want to pray for them. And uh, if you want to give to them, a really good way to give is uh, to give to the uh, Southern Baptist Disaster Relief Agency. And if you want to just give uh, here and designate it for that, we'll make sure that it gets to them. They do a tremendous job of helping people, and so pray for them as well. Uh, I also want to ask you to think about people that you know. You know anybody going through a rough time right now? Maybe they're sick or healing. Maybe they're grieving, or maybe they've got some problems going on in their family, or maybe it's a job difficulty, or any number of things that, become, that could be coming up. And uh, obviously we haven't done this in a while, uh, but I'd like to do it now. Would you just shoot somebody a text? And just, I'll give you time to do that, and just tell them, your church family loves you and I'm praying for you. Uh, sometimes that word of encouragement, every time we do this, I usually get a text or two from somebody that says, I got a text from so-and-so and it came in at just the right time. Well, it encourages people to know they're not forgotten and that we are indeed praying for them. I also uh, want to remind you of the staff love offering. I forgot to mention it last week. Some of you gave anyway. Thank you for that. And uh, I don't take this up for myself but I do take it up so that we might be able to bless. It's been a long time since we've been able to give raises to people and uh, any of our staff. And so we like to do this to kind of help them out, uh, especially this time of year, and also to express to them that we love them and uh, we care for them and we appreciate their ministry. So if you'll designate your offering, you can give, uh, you can write a check and put it in a box out there. You can put it in an envelope if you want to give cash. Just make sure it's designated for staff. You can uh, mail it in. You can drop it by the office. Or you can uh, go on our website and give that way. But uh, let me encourage you to do that. That'll be a great blessing to them. And uh, then as you think about today and we think about all of the trials that we face. Uh, I preached on this Wednesday night. Whatever trials we may face and whatever we may not like about our government or certain policies, you know what? Uh, you could have been born in China. Okay? You could have been North Korea. You could have been in Cuba. You could have been born uh, in Iran or someplace like that. This is still such a blessed nation. And so many times we find ourselves going negative. But I want to ask you at this time of the year, will you... Practice giving thanks to God. Instead of complaining about high prices, thank God that you have the money to afford it. Instead of complaining about the crowds, 
Thank God that we are still prosperous enough to have crowds when we go Christmas shopping. Uh, I could belabor that, but on and on and on we could go and find a way to give thanks. And if you have an opportunity to do it to somebody, being thankful for them or for what they have done, or to express thanks to the Lord. Maybe you're putting gas in your car and somebody's right on the other side. You say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good today. And uh, boy, gas prices are getting high, aren't they? Yeah, but I thank the Lord that I'm able to put it in my car and get where I need to go. Give a good word for the Lord and a testimony. It might turn into something more. It might turn into a gospel conversation. So I'm going to uh, give you a couple of minutes now to uh, send those texts. Some of you already are. Uh, go ahead and send that to somebody and just ask the Lord to allow your text to be a blessing. And then I'll lead us in a word of prayer in just a moment, okay? Father, we do want to pray for people in our church who are suffering, and that suffering comes in various forms. Some people are sick. Some people are healing, and healing is sometimes very painful. Some people are just discouraged. Some people, Lord, are facing things they don't want to face or going through a valley that they don't want to go through. Valley of the shadow of death and grieving, for example. We have other people, Lord, that their home is more of a battleground than it is a place of peace. We have people who are burdened and concerned for lost friends and family members. And on and on we could go. Oh, Father, would you remind us of what Jesus told us in Matthew that if we would come to him when we're weary and heavy laden, he would give us rest for our souls. And we needed that at salvation, but we also need it as saved people. Lord Jesus, give rest, give rest, give hope, give peace, the shalom of God. Give that to your people even now, Lord. And as we think about the world around us, and we think about all of the restlessness and the anger and the dissatisfaction and the turmoil that we see, Lord, I pray that you would make us as the people of God to be the thankful ones. Let us live holy lives, yes, and let us be zealous for the gospel and let us be sound in our doctrine and theology. Let us be well-fed on the word of God. But don't let us skip the part that says, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And while we do that, we're reminded to pray for the persecuted church all around the world. For those who are imprisoned. For those who are going through things we can't even imagine. Even to the point of torture. We pray for them. Pray for their governments. But we pray especially for them. That you would provide for them. That you would strengthen them and that they would endure and they would be found faithful to the end, and that many people would come to know Christ, just like what happened with the Apostle Paul. Please help them. And Lord, we pray for our country, and Lord, we know that we are so guilty 
of so many sins. We think, Lord, about how many innocent babies are murdered in their mother's wombs. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our sexual immorality and sexual perversions that we have somehow come to accept as just normal and just a part of life. Forgive us for the number of men who looked at pornography even last night. Forgive us, Father, for the premarital and extramarital sex that pollutes our souls and defiles other people and hinders our walk with you. Oh, Father, please cleanse us from our greed, from our covetousness, from our idolatries. Please cleanse our land and bless other churches as they gather like ours are today that Christian people might be fed and strengthened and encouraged and that we might be witnesses for Christ. Father, we pray for people who are suffering under the devastation of the storms. Help them and help all of the people that will be involved in the healing and in the rebuilding and the restoration of those communities. And Father, we uh, thank you today for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And thank you that he is our only hope, but I thank you, Lord, he is the sufficient hope. And we rest in him today. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we thank you that we stand on solid ground when that is the case. I pray for anyone here, anyone that is watching on live stream who is lost. Oh, Father, reveal yourself to them and save them. And I pray that you would strengthen the saved, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, take your Bibles. Got a Bible? Huh? Got a Bible? Good. Exodus. Exodus 31. We've been talking about uh, last week and this week how God... In putting together the tabernacle and his law, he was giving mankind, specifically his people, the gift of worship. Worship is not something we do. It's something that initiates with God. God tells us how to worship and gives us the gift and the ability to worship. And today we're going to cover a section of scripture. We're going to look at the gift of rest. The Lord gives his people rest. And there's a tremendous difference between the lost and the saved. In introduction, just let me read this out of Isaiah 57. It says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, two things I would say about that. That is certainly a reflection of and a description of our society. They just can't be happy. They can't ever really get at rest. Everything that they think is going to make them happy, this will fulfill my life. Well, it does maybe temporarily. Uh, the passing pleasures of sin, they don't last long, do they? And we look around at a world, especially here, where we see that people have so much, and uh, we're well-fed, and we have the luxuries of life, and we have all of the comforts of life, and everything we could want, but... There's always something that we don't have. There's always something that we can't afford. There's always something that's not to our liking. And so it just kind of boils over into lives. And we see 
domestic abuse and violence. We see people in the streets. We see people uh, looting and uh, things like that. Why? There's just an unrest that goes on. So it's a picture of society. You ought to thank God that you have the peace of God and peace with God in your life. The other thing that I thought about is this is a picture of hell. There's no rest in hell. There's no enjoyment in hell. There's no fulfillment in hell. And uh, to think about spending an eternity there where there is no rest for the wicked, that's an apt description of some of the torments, some of them, that are going on in hell even now. So we come to our text this morning in Exodus 31, beginning at verse 12, and God is going to give them some more instruction, some more revelation, and this is concerning what he expects them to do on the Sabbath. Verse 12, follow along with me. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. Now here's a purpose. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Why? Another purpose. That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. It's kind of like our lesson about the Lord's Supper, isn't it, in Sunday school. It's all about the Lord. A reminder of who the Lord is. And that's what the Lord says. The Sabbath is not just simply a time for you. It's a time for you to know me and that I sanctify you. Keeping the Sabbath doesn't make you holy. Only the Lord can make you holy is what he is saying. Let's pick up at verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, or because of this, for it is holy or set apart to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Sounds like the Lord is serious, doesn't it? For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 15, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy or set apart to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Why did the Lord repeat that? That's a Hebrew way of emphasis, okay? Very strong emphasis there. Verse 16. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested, and Moses who wrote Genesis, is also writing Exodus, and he adds these words for a little bit of clarification, and was refreshed. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading of your word? Thank you that it is alive, it is powerful. Thank you that it is truthful and accurate. And thank you, Father, that even in the Old Testament, Jesus said, the scriptures testify of me. Give us the ability to pay attention, to comprehend, to obey, and above all, to see Christ in this. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when you look at this passage, 
and you think about it, kind of break it down, I want you to think about and write down the word people. Who is this for? Who is the Lord addressing? We've got to keep it in context. Now remember, these are the slaves that have been freed from Egypt, and they are at the base of Mount Sinai, and God has not yet given them anything in written form. This is all preliminary to what is going to be on those tablets of stone that we're going to see for the first time in the next chapter. But this is Moses writing down under the inspiration of the Spirit what is going on and what God's commands are because he wants it to be in the minds and the hearts of the people of God. So why do they repeat so much? Well, some of it's for emphasis, as we said before. That's their way of putting it in large font, bold print, underline. They just would repeat it to show you that it's important. But the other thing is, because in the law of God, there are going to be some 630 plus commands. How good would you be at remembering that? And so they say it over and over and over and over and over and over and over throughout the first five books of the Old Testament because uh, that way it's going to have a better tendency to get into your mind. And when you look at this and you see these people that are waiting on Moses to come down from the mountain, these are not Egyptians, these are not Hittites, these are not Perizzites, these are not any other kind of ites, they're not Philistines or anybody like that. This is Israel, the people of God. In fact, if you were to uh, look at this passage again and go back and count, how many times would you find a reference to Israel in these verses? It's very clear that God is speaking this to his covenant people, to the people of Israel. This is for Israel, this is for the Jews, the Hebrews, and it marked them off, it's very clear in here, as not just any race of people, but they're marked off as people of God. They're told, observe this Sabbath because you are the people of God. Not to become the people of God, but because you are the people of God and you have a covenant relationship with God. And here's how I want to um, show that, to remind you and uh, to show your children and also to, to, to set you apart from all of the other nations of the earth. And I found a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, that was interesting to me. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Well, we know that. And that's always good to remember. They had a tendency to forget that, didn't they? But then the verse goes on with a therefore. Therefore always reminds us of what was said previously. Because the Lord brought you out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now it's interesting to me that the Sabbath was tied to their past. The Sabbath was tied to their slavery. God never wanted them to forget where they had come from and where they would be had it not been for the Lord. I think that's a good thing for us, even as New Testament Christians. Sometimes we need to remember where we would be if the Lord had not brought us out. What would your life be like? What would your family be like, much less your eternal destiny, had the Lord not brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? 
And I think it's also important for us to remember every time we gather. God said here to the Israelites, I brought you out. Now observe the Sabbath so you don't forget that I brought you out. And I think sometimes when we look at our life, when things are going well especially, we have a tendency to take credit for it, don't we? We have a tendency to say, well, I just was wise. I made good decisions. I worked hard. Well, let's just put it in perspective. Had the Lord not given you the ability to do that, you couldn't do it. I've got a friend from high school who would love to go to work, but he can't. He has ALS. He literally cannot do anything for himself right now. So desire doesn't get it done. It has to be the enablement of God. And the only way he's going to be able to get out of that and go back to work is by a miracle of God. Well, I tie that to us. The only reason you had any wisdom, any sense at all, any drive or ambition that God could bless was because of God himself giving it to you through the gift of salvation, which is only by grace, and by giving you his word, which has made you wise and taught you his precepts. And so our worship here today is not just simply to think about God and obey him. It's also to think about ourselves and where we would be had the Lord not brought us out. Some of you might even be in prison today had it not been for the intervention of the Lord. So it is about eternal destiny, but it's also about just life itself. God has blessed us with all things that pertain to life and godliness, everyday living as well as being right with God. And that's what the Sabbath was supposed to do. Hey, Israel, don't ever forget don't ever forget you would still be a slave in Egypt had it not been for me. But there was another thing that I thought about too. Slaves don't typically get a day off, do they? They make bricks whenever Pharaoh says make bricks. They gather straw whenever Pharaoh says gather straw. They have a quota that they have to meet for all of those things that they didn't come up with. It was imposed upon them and they would feel the lash of the whip if they did not do that. And so God is saying, you're not a slave anymore. You can actually take a day off. Yeah, six days labor and do your work. It's a good thing to work. It's honorable to work. And they're going to have a time in the promised land where they can actually work their own land. How good did that sound to a slave? You're going to grow your own crops. Boy, how good does that sound to a slave? You're going to be able to put the time in on your crops that is necessary to bring in a good harvest. I've just got this feeling that a slave may work in the field, but he doesn't care whether the crop comes in or not or how much it comes in. But when it is his own field, he's going to care and he's going to do those extra things. Folks, that's why communism and socialism never work. People that have the state own everything, they don't have much incentive to be educated. They don't have much incentive to better themselves. They don't have much incentive to take care of equipment that they don't own. They don't have much incentive to grow better crops or more crops because it's all the same to them and it all pays the same. And so these free people here in the, in the desert 
and in Sinai are being reminded, you're no longer a slave. Quit thinking like a slave and get ready to go to work. So they were going to acknowledge the Lord and they were going to go to work and they were going to work for the glory of God in the land flowing with milk and honey. And they were going to get to rest in between. The masters in Egypt didn't care if they rested. When one slave dies, there's another one to take his place. But God's saying, rest yourself. Rest yourself. And be ready to go to work and do it for my glory and also for your and your family's well-being. Okay, the second word that uh, comes to my mind as I read this passage is the word pattern. They're to do this because, well, the Bible says on the seventh day, God rested. Now, God wasn't tired. And God had not expended any energy where he was huffing and puffing and said, boy, I need to take a nap. That's not the point. To rest means he just simply ceased from his work. He had finished. To be refreshed in the work, it doesn't mean that God had to have a Coke or something like that. It means that God sat back and he looked. It's at this point that he says the final, and God saw that it was very good. And God looked at his own works, and he saw them, and he was refreshed, glorified, honored, praised when he saw the work of his hands. I think when we think about the Sabbath, when we think about what God is saying, he's saying to his people, I want you to rest because you're no longer a slave And I also want you to be able to look around and to observe what you've done throughout the week. I want you to be able to see how it's different being free than it was when you were a slave. I want you to see what the Lord has done. When you get into the land, I want you to see the land that the Lord has given you so that all the praise and the glory goes back to the Lord. And one of the things I've noticed is that when I'm refreshed in the Lord when I praise the Lord, when I glorify Him, it does something in my life. I relax when that happens. I rest. I feel peace when that happens. I'm ready to take on new challenges and new battles whenever I have a reprieve and I'm able to rest in the Lord. So the Sabbath was to be a day when people looked at the works of God that He had, been, that he had enabled them to do so that he could rejoice in it. You know, most people hate their jobs. Most people curse their bosses. Most people just don't see any relevance in what they do. But I'll just make this statement. Whatever work you do, if you do it to the glory of God, it makes you significant. And a person at the lowest of the pay scale in the most menial of jobs that does it for the glory of God is more significant than the President of the United States. If you think about that, it gives you a chance to do what the Israelis were supposed to do. You need to rest so that you're ready for the next week's work, and you need to reflect on what you've done, or rather what God has done through you. And that's the pattern that we have. Thirdly, there's a picture here. And uh, this is the rest of the believer. God is giving us a picture here of the believer's rest. 
You too were a slave at one time. You were a slave to the devil, and he was a cruel taskmaster. But God has taken you and delivered you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and brought you out of the kingdom of darkness, it says in, I believe it's Colossians. And he's brought you into the kingdom of light. You're a new creature in Christ, and uh, you are a part of the family of God. And the Bible says that God gives rest to his children. Salvation, as we know, is not of works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us that. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. And then the last part says, do you remember it? Yeah, lest you boast. You know what happens whenever we work and we don't acknowledge God? We boast. We boast in it. And so God has given us salvation that has nothing to do with us so that we don't take credit for it. So that we don't boast in any of this. And heaven is going to be an eternal Sabbath. And so when it comes to your salvation, the moment you confess Christ is Lord, you entered into an eternal rest. You don't have to work for your salvation. Do you work? Oh yeah, Ephesians 2.10 says that we're appointed unto good works that he's ordained for us, but we don't work for salvation. We work from or out of our salvation, right? And we find joy in serving God. It's amazing how many times I've heard somebody say about Mission 405, for example. I went there thinking I would be a blessing to the people that we were serving, and instead I ended up getting blessed. You know how many times I've heard somebody say, I went to the hospital to see this person because I thought I would bless them, but I ended up being the one blessed. It's amazing when we serve God for His glory and in His strength, he always pours it back upon us. And we get blessed and we have a rest. Jesus at the well of Samaria, he uh, was hungry and he sat down and his disciples went to get him something to eat, remember? Then he had the encounter with the woman at the well. She gets saved. And when the disciples come back, they say, Here, Master, we uh, stopped by McDonald's and got you a Big Mac and fries. And the Lord said, No, I have meat that ye know not of. And the disciples are, did somebody feed him? I mean, we went to all this trouble. And uh, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father. There's just, child of God, there's something about doing the will of God and serving him that refreshes you and that blesses you. And so this idea of the Sabbath is a picture of what we experience. It's written of in the book of Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. We're entering into rest. We're entering into the Sabbath, in other words, the moment we get saved. Now for the lost, it says, and he quotes the Old Testament, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And uh, that really is true because there is no rest for the wicked. But you and I have an opportunity to enter into a state of peace with God, even to have peace in the midst of the storm, even to be able to sing hymns to God in prison at midnight 
as Paul and Silas did. I mean, it's just different for us if we will understand what we have entered into. It's a Sabbath that never ends. It's not just one day a week. It's the Sabbath that never ends. Number four, kind of dovetailing into that, it's both present and perpetual. The Lord mentions that for Israel, but it's even more true for the child of God. Hebrews 4 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that the Sabbath rest we have is not just one day a week. We enter into that every single day of our saved lives. And we rest in the Lord, and we rest in His salvation. We rest in His love, and in His grace, and in His mercy. And He gives us the peace that the world cannot give. The joy that the world cannot give. That's what we have. And it's more than just, oh, I can't wait until the Sabbath gets here so that I don't have to work. We're free from that all the time in a spiritual sense. And whatever other work we do to provide for our family or the good works that we do as a result of being saved, He gives us the power and the reward and the joy for doing those. But we don't do it because we want to have a right relationship with God. We do it because we have a right relationship with God. And it's a present-day thing, the writer of Hebrews says, and then it will be perpetual when we get to heaven. Now, that also brings us up to a problem. Why didn't this work for the Jews? And why was there such a problem with that? Well, people made it a measure of righteousness. And we all tend to do this, but the Jews, especially of Jesus' day, uh, they were really, really good at it. I know we both kept the Sabbath, but boy, you sure didn't keep it like I kept the Sabbath. Got a problem here. My ear must have changed sides, sizes. Um, we have this tendency to say and to look around like Pharisees. Well, you sure didn't keep the Sabbath quite like you ought to, but I did. Remember that? And they were always looking down their nose at somebody else. In other words, instead of the Sabbath doing what it said in Exodus and reminding them of the Lord, the Pharisees in particular, it reminded them of themselves and how good they are. I don't keep the Sabbath because I'm a sinner. I keep the Sabbath because I am holy and I'm much more holy than you. Now, as you read through the New Testament, have you ever noticed how much trouble they gave Jesus over the Sabbath. Now that takes some guts. The one who created the Sabbath and commanded the Sabbath, who is Lord of the Sabbath, they have a tendency to judge him because they didn't think that he was keeping the Sabbath like they kept the Sabbath. And the truth of the matter is, when you look at the way they kept the Sabbath, it was with a bunch of man-made rules, additions, and burdens that especially a common person couldn't keep. And that always kept the Pharisees one notch higher, one step above everybody else. And Jesus being a Galilean, they thought they could do that with him as well and with his disciples. Most of them were from 
Galilee as well. And when you think about it, here's one example. In Mark chapter 2, verse 23, it says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, here's his self-righteousness, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence. We studied about that. That bread that was on the table in there, David ate it. Which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, when you came into a relationship with Christ, and you were in Christ, and Christ is in you, then it changed all of this stuff, and all of the law, and all of the legalisms, and everything were changed, because you know the Lord of the Sabbath. But isn't it interesting that the Pharisees were attempting to judge the Lord of the Sabbath by their man-made rules and regulations because they thought they were holier than him and his disciples. That's pretty, pretty, pretty bold, isn't it? And they were hypocritical because they made exceptions for themselves but not for others. You're familiar with Matthew chapter Two, uh, pardon me, 12, verse 9. And it says, He went from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Okay? Well, we know that story. But I want you to notice as I read this, Jesus didn't call out the guy with the withered hand. He didn't approach the guy with the withered hand. The Pharisees brought the guy with the withered hand up. Why? in order to test Jesus. They wanted to catch him violating the Sabbath so he could be put to death, as Moses said. Listen to this. And they asked him, Jesus, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, that's interesting, because they couldn't heal anybody. And Jesus was healing, making people's lives better, restoring them to health. But they were just sure that would be some kind of a work that would violate the Mosaic law. They didn't understand the first thing about it, did they? So that they might accuse him, it says. They're looking, trying to trick him and to trap him. Notice they use the Sabbath. He said to them... Which one of you, here's the exception that they would make, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And he said, of course you will. That's your livelihood. That's your money. Even you Pharisees are going to violate the Sabbath law if it's going to cost you money, is what he is saying here. And so the Bible says, that he said, uh, that Jesus went on to say, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There's the principle. 
Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Well, that's a good work to do on the Sabbath, isn't it? Conspire how to destroy the Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath, or anyone else. But you see, to them it was only a ritual to make them look good and to put down other people. And so the whole Sabbath system had become a stench in the nostrils of God because of what man always does to pervert it and to magnify himself. Jesus had trouble over the Sabbath as well. Now I do want you to notice something. The Sabbath is the only commandment in the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament. You can find all of the other ones except for the Sabbath, and there's a reason for that. When you think about especially Gentile believers, why is it that even though the Jewish Christians, they would go to the temple on the Sabbath as well as worship on the first day of the week, how come... Gentiles don't do that. And why did it move away from that in the New Testament? Gentile believers were never commanded to observe the Sabbath. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 2.16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regards to a festival or a new moon. Here it is. Or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. And Paul is saying there, all of the things that you found in the Old Testament and in the law were just shadows pointing to the real thing. Shadows pointing to the real thing. Uh, You can't see it, but I can with these lights. I see my shadow right down here. I see my shadow. It's moving when I move. The shadow is not the real thing. This is the real thing. The shadow is just something that points back to the reality of who I am and the fact that there's light shining on me right now. And Paul was saying to those Gentile believers who were uh, the Judaizers were trying to kind of make them into quasi-Jews, he was saying to them, all of those things you find in the Old Testament, they're real and God gave them, but they were shadows that should make you look up to the real thing to see where the light is, and the light, of course, is Christ. Which brings us to the last thing, and that is the person, and that is Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest. That's why he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. He didn't say run to the temple. He didn't say run to the church. He didn't say run to the seventh day of the week. He said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And boy, were they ever laboring under all of the rules that the Pharisees gave them in addition to the law of God. And they could never measure up. No matter how hard they worked, it was never enough. It was never good enough. It was never perfect enough. And they would strive and strive and strive and strive. And they would have more and more and more put on them. In fact, the Pharisees were a lot like Pharaoh, weren't they? laying loads on their back and demanding more of them while making exceptions for themselves. And Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you an eternal, perpetual Sabbath. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And after all, that's where it really starts or it ends. The rest of the soul. The rest of the soul. Resting in the Lord. Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you resting in Christ? You know, it would be good for us to think about some things. Are you living a life of worship? Because for the New Testament believer, because the Sabbath is all the time, every day, seven days a week, and for our eternity, it means that our worship is to be the same way. Don't fall into the trap of thinking worship is only for one day a week, whether it's Saturday or Sunday. It's something that we are to live a perpetual life of worship. Another question. Is your life different and distinct from the world? No, you may not worship on Saturday. New Testament believers in the Bible started worshiping on the Lord's Day. They called Sunday the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the day He was resurrected. But people shouldn't see a difference in your life just at this hour on Sunday morning. They ought to see a difference in your life all the time, 24-7. Because you're not your own, you're bought with a price, the Bible says. And our lives, like ancient Israel's, well, it was to show up before the world as we are different. We're servants of the Most High God. Are you enjoying the rest that you have in Christ? You know, some people act so burdened down, so tired, so worn out. What's the problem? I'm just serving the Lord. Maybe you need to go back and look at the gospel again and understand who He is and what He has done for you. Maybe you need to go back and find out. Maybe I'm working in some areas I'm not supposed to work in. Or maybe I'm neglecting the areas I'm supposed to work in because I'm so busy everywhere else. Christ has promised to give you rest for your soul. Then the last question, probably the most important. Have you trusted the death, burial, and resurrection as the fulfillment of the law, the Sabbath? For your life. Jesus did all of that for you. And he kept the law so he could be the unblemished lamb. That died on the cross in your place. And God the father punished him the innocent one. For all of your lawless deeds. And Christ paid for them in full. Saying it is finished. The Bible says that you really can't be a worshiper and you can't have peace with God until you've trusted Him to forgive your sins, to take your place in judgment, the wrath of God. Christ took that for you. To believe that He was raised from the dead, that He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and that He is Lord of all. And when that happens, have you ever seen anybody when they first get saved go, Oh, I feel so terrible. I'm so burdened down. This is more than I can bear. No, you find people that say, Oh, I can't believe the peace. I can't believe the joy. I can't believe what has happened in my life. Now, we don't chase after feelings. But it is interesting. Everybody I've ever seen saved, they feel, let's just put it this way, F-R-E-E, free from the burdens of sin and of life. Why? Because at that moment... All of that sin became God's business and the righteousness of Christ was put on the books 
And the Spirit of God came to live within them. And so, child of God, I want to ask you, what's happened to you since then? What's happened to you since then? I want to ask you to seek the rest that is not in a ritual, but the rest that is found in Christ. And if you've never trusted Him, I want to encourage you today, cry out to the only one who can save you, and that's Jesus. Surrender to Him as Lord and put your trust in what He did as the full payment for your sins and you will find rest, the Sabbath, the shalom of God for your soul. And oh, what a life-changing thing that is (coughs) and what a world-changing thing it would be if more people in the world knew Christ as Savior and Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, as we think about this, we are thankful that we are not under law, the book of Galatians says, but under grace. And I think about how when Paul came back to give the report in Acts 15 about the Gentiles being saved, and as they deliberated all of that, I thank you that they said, why would we want to put the Gentiles under what our own forefathers could not bear? Because whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the bottom line is the law points out your failure to be holy. Our failure to be holy. Shows us our sin. But thanks be to God, God solved the problem by sending Christ, who lived perfectly the law of God, and then took the punishment for the broken laws of our lives in His own body, and paid for them in full. Praise His holy name and so we rest in you today lord rest us in our mind our will and our emotions rest us in every area of life so that we don't run around in a panic and we don't run around weak so that the enemy can attack us but we're rested and we're strong and we're ready and we're watchful And make us to where we are thankful and we see the work of God all around us and we remember the Lord, not just on the Sabbath, but every day of our lives. Where He found us, what He has done for us. And say, as we say today, to God alone be the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.